Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Cole. In the building, on the mic, is Mercedes Zapata. Hey, that's Mercedes. Right. Hello. Hi. Hey, that's right. <laughs> I've made it. <laughs> DJ Cashier is also on the mic tonight. You know, we out here. Right. Sometimes make a special appearance. When I, asked, when I asked Max, the snack door, if he wanted to be on the mic, he's like, I'm good. <laughs> um, but he is in the building, and uh, we're glad to have him with us in the spaceship. We have a very special guest, y'all. I am excited, as I'm sure um, you all know. Uh, this this man is uh, really has been a pillar in in uh, Chicago nightlife and Chicago culture for at least three decades. Somebody who was put on for house and and certainly carved a very large space in in the city for hip hop in Chicago. A space maker, one of the illest uh, mixers on the planet, uh, and and really a master of records, has very very deep cuts and a broad ear. Uh, someone whose whose parties are always very live. Jesse De La Pena is in the corner store, sir. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here, man. I've been I've been listening. You know, we've connected many years ago, so it's always good to hear what you're up to. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. No, man. I'm, well, I'm excited to hear, uh, you know, kind of not only what you've been up to, some of which I've been privy to firsthand, but also just, you know, get into your story a little bit. Uh, one of the things that we do in the corner store, we offer our guests some snacks, which Max, the snack door secures. Uh, tonight is no different. We have for you some Cheetos popcorn cheddar <laughs> flavor. This is, uh, I don't know. You, yeah. Be careful about your hands All there. Right. But, but feel free to enjoy now if you wish. Uh, in addition, <laughs> Max has gotten for you a classic Arnold Palmer light. Oh, that's, that's uh, the half and half iced tea. I haven't had lemonade. one of these in a while. I've been being good. Okay, yeah, yeah. Those are pretty <laughs> delicious, though. But these are pretty good. I'm just watching my sugar. Yeah, Get no, you older. got to, man. Those yeah, are the listen. things you have to do. That's right. That's right. You have to do that. I you want to be present for the, the rest of your, uh, you know, plans. That's right. So, yo, I didn't even notice that you have a uh, you have a CTA car in your arm. Oh, oh no, no, it's, no, it's, it's a the mixer. Actual, the pitch control. The pitch control. Some people think it. There's a couple things they think it's a ruler. Uh, what's the other thing? It's um, how is it a, a volume knob? But but it's a pitch control. Yeah, I had it for a little bit. So so let's you know let's get into it, man. You you've been uh, DJing in Chicago for how long? Um, well, you know, there's that that time when you kind of you know go towards it and start. You know, we all that's how we consumed uh, back then music. We bought records. But then there was that point where you're like, okay, wait, maybe I can start putting music together. So probably maybe about 30, 33, 34, maybe a little longer. But I don't really consider those early when I didn't really know what I was doing. So I think, you know, probably, you know, maybe about 33 years. Okay. And I, and I want to get to how you got into music. But, but first, you know, where do you come from? Um, I'm originally from the south side, the southeast side. A lot of times when you say uh, I'm from the south side of Chicago, people gravitate to the southwest side. And I eventually made my way over there. But I'm originally from the southeast side, uh, south Chicago. South Chicago, as my girlfriend says, south. She always <laughs> points that out. Little things we came up saying and way we talk. Uh, you know, mom spoke a certain way, you know, yep. wa- wa- washed the floors <laughs> and little Chicago-isms. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm originally from the southeast side. Uh, 87th in Manistee, South Chicago. Uh, then we moved, in, I think, 7th, 8th grade, we moved uh, to South Deering. Uh, it's a little further south, 106th in Bensley, Torrance Avenue, kind of on your way out to uh, River Oaks. Um, and then 8th um, grade, we moved 
um, to the southwest side, 86th and Pulaski area, Lawndale, and um, went to grammar school out there for half a year and then entered uh, high school, Bogan. And that's kind of where everything started, uh, you know, coming together. Right. After I uh, saw Beat Street. Oh, right. That was uh, probably the movie for a lot of people. For a lot. For, yeah, me too, included. Yeah. yeah. So this is, what, 83? 83, 83, yeah. 84. Yeah. Kind of, 83 was uh, grammar school. 84 was uh, high school, freshman year. So what was it about Beat Street that kind of caught your attention? Well, let me back up a little bit. Please. Because... Uh, when I moved from the southeast side and moving to the southwest side, it, like where I came from was pretty mixed area. And I lived in a housing project. I lived in, uh, I don't know what it was called then, but it was 106 in Bensley, Torrance. Um, Torrance, it was the, the Trumbull Park is, is the area. So it was, you know, just that's what I knew. When I moved to the southwest side, it was a predominantly white area. And... I never really put, I'd go there on weekends, you know, uh, my mom, my stepfather lived there. So we eventually, you know, went over there and we took up a life there, high school and all that stuff. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, this is Southwest side, very, very close to uh, market park, uh, all the, you know, the racial tension that was going on. So yeah. What was the ethnic makeup uh, of market park around that time? Uh, I would say it was pretty white. Yeah. I mean, there was a Nazi uh, headquarters yeah. right down 67th, right yeah, down very Market. very famous rally, right, yeah. of, of Nazis keeping King out of Market yeah. Park in the 60s yeah. and then remained a, a white stronghold for a number of years. Yeah, so we weren't too far from that. And and there were elements of that in the area. It was very white. Um, the only uh, people of color were being bussed in. Um, so... It was a little weird getting used to that because I kind of came from a mixed area. I lived, uh, you know, South Chicago, South Deering. So even in conversations, if I go to the 7-Eleven or something, just as a conversation starter, the person behind the, the, the cash register would be like, hey, how about these N-words, you know, whatever. It, that would be like a regular topic amongst folks. So it was, it was weird because I looked white and people were just kind of like assume. Yeah. Assume yeah. that that was the, the view that I held. Yeah. So even, you know, just conversations, people say, you, you know, say that you say, you say that funny watch, say this word or say that word, you know? So it was an adjustment period and I felt a little out of place, but it was definitely a better situation for us. Um, what you did know, your mom do? My mom was originally a nurse. Um, but after she had kids, you know, she just was a stay at home, but she was a single, um, uh, parent, you know, never really knew the, the, the father. Um, it was, uh, just me and my sister, Diane, and then later Leanne who, who came along. Um, so yeah, we were kind of figuring it out. We went from living in South Chicago to South Deering, living the projects there. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of hard times, but my mom was figuring it out and she eventually met my stepfather. And, you know, he was able to take us out of that and give us another opportunity, you know, on the Southwest side. But all the things that came with that, you know, just the racial stuff, I, I didn't really think about it while it was happening. You know, I, when well, you're a kid, too. Yeah, right? you're, yeah so you're you, don't, not really, you don't have all the language or tools to deal with stuff. Like yeah. That. So I think he's white. You stepped. Yeah, he was. He's Polish. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm uh, German, Irish, Mexican. Um, so it's, it's a lot going on. You're a real Chicago, <laughs> you know, very Chicago. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. 
Um, so we, uh, you know, ended up on the Southwest side, uh, went to Bogan freshman year. And like I said, that's kind of where things started because when I arrived, uh, in the Southwest side, um, the people that I met and kind of gravitated to, they were like more rocker kind of guys, but you know, into Led Zeppelin and the doors and stuff. And I, and I appreciated that stuff. But before I moved into that area, I always kind of, you know, gravitated to everything from like new wave to uh, rock. And then, you know, I started discovering stuff that had a little funkier groove to it. When a lot of the rock stuff started getting more disco, you know, your Queens, another one bites the dust, you know, rappers delight hearing that when I lived in the projects for the first time and just being amazed. Yeah. And it was, it was funny because you know, I did adapt some of that, you know, I'm not really big into disco, you know, I was more of a rocker, except, except that one song, except <laughs> Rapper's Delight. Yeah. That one's cool. Which was a Sheik's Good Time is the beat. Right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. you know. So, you know, I felt a little, you know, out of place when I did move to the Southwest side because the racial stuff and um, just, you know, the makeup of people, it was really pretty one dimensional. It was pretty white and, um it wasn't until I uh, went to high school I started seeing uh, other folks. It was it was more of a mix, and that it was it coincided with um, hip hop kind of making its uh, debut here in Chicago. Mm. Eighty four, Beat Street, Break In, later Wild Style, Style Wars, all this stuff, you, you know. But that's when things started kind of getting interesting, and uh, you know I started gravitating towards uh certain things uh dj culture dances parties church basements all that stuff was kind of all coming into play here in chicago and you know i'm 14 kind of just figuring not old enough to go to clubs but you know that, but to go to par- basement parties certainly. yeah yeah churches and right. banquet halls and that's what we did yeah and um so it was interesting because this all was kind of laying just kind of playing out you know just as a as a kind of teenager you know high school but now were you because chicago you know first and foremost at that time um was beginning to be a full-on house city as opposed to hip-hop were were, were your your penchant for breaks for hip-hop were you i mean like a lot of us it was uh originally the the college mix shows obviously there was wbmx and wgci which were more dance oriented more the italo disco um later what would be yeah hot mix five all that stuff was a big influence but i think some of the college radio stations whbk wnur kkc crx um you know those were the ones that kind of you know maybe delve a little deeper because you weren't going to hear a lot of hip-hop in the mixes but you would hear gci would have like a top 10 with roxanne shante and you know run dmc and all that Super stuff Bowl shuffle at some yeah point, right? exactly yeah so you know that stuff was interesting to me but i think as i kind of progressed in hip-hop you know originally as um a graffiti writer a break dancer and later a dj it kind of was happening at the same time the house stuff and uh, and and this is really kind of pre-house it's kind of like you know in chicago when people want to hear old school house and they ask you to play that that doesn't necessarily mean they want to hear house that means they want to hear electro they want to hear italo disco uh, all, like all the stuff that was played in the mix show to sh- most chicagoans is old school house 
doesn't have to be house. Right. Stevie Wonder, you know, is yeah, old school house. James Brown, old yeah. school house. Because in some ways it would be about the mix, right? It would be about, about the, the way mix. people uh, arranged records. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we didn't really have the, the breakdown of what house music was back then. It was something new. But then, you know, as you got older and just even in more recent years, people started making the distinction between house music culture and house music the genre. Mm. And, and this was all happening as hip-hop was, was growing all over the world, but only in Chicago on the, uh, the college stations. And uh, it wasn't something you'd hear in a major club setting, a 21 and over club. You'd have to go to parties, you know? Right, right. Now, of course, you, uh, you had a hand in changing that, which I want to get to in, in a moment. But so you, you said you just mentioned you started b-boying and writing graffiti and then DJing? Yeah, it was probably uh, breakdancing, graffiti, and then DJing. Were you a part of Cruise? Yeah, I was, I was part of Supreme Masters of Graffiti. I was uh, Smog. Uh, we That's had, what you we, wrote? Yeah, well, I, I had a few different names. Okay. I, I wrote Mask. I wrote, uh, no, originally the first name was Fade, F-A-D-E. Then I, I switched to Mask, and I think the name that I got up most with was Ease. Most people know me, E-A-S-E. Mm. Uh, Smog. We we had a, a, a pretty uh, interesting um, crew as far as um, the members, the makeup. Um, one of the, I mean, we had some pretty uh, notorious people in the in the, the group that were just bombers and some pretty amazing artists. Our leader, John Tobias, uh, is one of the co-creators of Mortal Kombat. Wow! So he worked at Mali, uh, Bali Midway and and all that stuff. So he was he was always pretty uh, you know driven. When it came to art and stuff, uh, was, that makes sense that a hip hop head made Mortal Kombat because like hip hop heads love that game too. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, design. You yeah, know, right. Design was in the crew. Shit, wow. Later, Aerosol, Casper. Yeah, uh, was of part of Smog originally. So, I mean, oh, so, so Aerosol evolved out of Smog. No, just just a few members became coincidentally were a part okay, of. But okay. earlier, before they were Aerosol, they were Smog. Wow. Yeah, and, and you know there were little different, um, uh, I guess, uh, groups that were kind of paired, like the Hitman from East Chicago, Indiana, um, Kisa crew. I mean, a lot of those guys we met early on. I met those guys at um, Navy Pier at some uh, at the what was the uh, festival? Olive. Um, I'm trying to think. There was like a big festival, music festival they used to do at um, Navy Pier. It was uh, the Pan American Fest at Olive Park, which is kind of right where Vocalo and all that stuff and WBEZ is now. Right. Uh, so I met those guys and we, we stayed in touch and just. Did you, you know, ever think you would work there like the 20, 30 years <laughs> later? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I mean, that's when we were going to Chicago Fest there. It was yeah. like warehouses. Right. It was, I mean, it was like. Yeah, Navy yeah. Pier was not for tourists, really. No, I mean, it started no. as a, a, well, a, as a pier for boats yeah uh, for naval ships but then it became a, a campus for uic um and yeah it's a crazy history yeah yeah i do remember going to chicago fest and seeing cheap trick there uh in that whole little area where i uh i wa- i frequent every day you know as you pull up into the uh the, the pier yeah so it's interesting you know what old chicago you know as a as a 50 year old guy reminiscing <laughs> right right wow so all right so so and then so graffiti b-boying djing came about yes um when do you remember your first throwing your first party um 
high school, um, after I was DJ, I was hanging out with uh, some friends. Uh, a lot of people thought I went to Curie. I was just there, you know, hanging out and passing out flyers like we did, hanging out posters and stuff. But uh, hanging out with these guys from a, a crew called Ultimate Touch, and we threw our first party, and it was kind of a wacky idea. And I, I think I may have been char- uh, leading the charge. It was in the middle of winter. And these were like banquet hall parties, you know. You'd have like, you know, radio, one of the Hot Mix 5 guys there, or GCI. Uh, but the theme, you needed like a theme, like to kind of catch him. And uh, I suggested a bikini contest <laughs> in the middle of winter. Wow. And I still have the flyers, man. People came out. This was at the Caesars Inn on uh, 79th and um, right off of Cicero in Burbank, right across uh, the border, Chicago. Right. And uh, yeah, a lot of parties happening throughout the city. What year are you? This is like, this is probably maybe 86, 87. And you're a sophomore, junior? Yeah, Yeah. yes, right around that time. Yeah. You know, I was still kind of in between schools. Started out at Bogan, went to uh, Washburn Trade, went to Double E. You know, at that point, I I was not a scholar. I wanted to be doing graffiti and breakdancing and music and. uh, yeah, I mean, Bogan was where it all started, you know, and then, you know, later, just kind of moving about. Uh, so you graduated from Bogan? Yeah, alternative school, but not from Bogan, no. Okay, which, yeah. one, which alternative school? This was uh, Latino Youth. Oh, yeah, okay, of course. Many, many moons ago. Okay, yeah, was it, was it, because at some point, it was in Little Village. Yeah, it was, right okay. on uh, Marshall Boulevard, yeah. right there in Cermak. Cermak, that's yeah. right, okay. Um, so you graduated from there. Uh, it, it, no college. No college. Okay. It, it, it's funny because when you, I started thinking back, like things just kind of started moving, and maybe at some point there was some thoughts of college, maybe music, some type of music business. But when I think about it, I don't even know when that would have happened because things were just kind of moving. What was happening that kind of didn't even allow you to think of that? Well, I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was living on my own. I think at this point. I was working in record stores. I worked at Imports, et cetera, the second phase of it. Yeah, which um, was where? It was still on Plymouth Court, but just a couple doors down. The garage was a little further down. And uh, this is when they kind of went into like a nicer uh, actual store. And they had like CDs and stuff. And this was it's kind of a weird phase, you know, because everybody was so into vinyl at that point. And, uh, you know, definitely big up to Paul Weisberg. Uh, from Imports Records, he he's the one who actually connected me. I'm getting a little ahead of the story, yeah. but he connected me with Joe Shanahan, oh. and you know my first residency at Smart Bar and stuff, and definitely owe a lot to him for for you know making that connect, and you know just the way things started playing out. You know, I was doing parties, I was DJing a lot, but I was at that point I was I wasn't doing any of the uh, nightclubs. I was still doing more of the uh, the underage stuff. Yeah, well, because like you were saying, even in that time, this is now the late 80s, mm-hmm. uh, no real regular nights for hip-hop in the city. No, a lot of one-offs. I mean, there was the Blue Gargoyle. I went to some yeah. parties there. But Steps. also underage, right? I yeah. Mean, Blue, yeah, none Blue of these Gar- were like yeah. 21 and over clubs. Yeah. Um, Darrow, obviously, you know, Lower Links, uh, Lizard Lounge up north. Those were some of the first ones, and that kind of sparked the interest. But be, even before I got into doing the hip-hop stuff, I was obviously, I had this whole other life. I had so many different lives as, as a DJ. Um, where We're missing the new wave industrial uh, oh, right. you know, stuff. that, uh, And that's what I got kind of known for. And that's what was my kind of springboard into the DJ game. Because at that point, I was buying hip-hop, and I was 
listening to hip hop and I was writing graffiti. But in Chicago, there were, everybody was a DJ and they were all they were all playing house music. And as much as I liked house, it was a little repetitive. Work this, bang this, rock this, jack this. You know, everything, you know, everybody just discovered the sampler, so they're mm. very sample heavy. And all that stuff was was cool. Um, but it was kind of like you weren't going to get a job at a nightclub spinning hip hop. So, Certainly not that you time, know, no. I collected yeah. it for myself and I always bought hip hop. But I realized at some point uh, dance music was kind of where things were in the DJ game. So I started out playing like high energy and house and at some point I got a little bored with it. So I, I went more of the new wave alternative industrial route. So you mentioned Cheap Trick, but who, who else were you who who were you playing at that time? I mean, oh no, Cheap Trick was just who was performing okay. at, at Chicago Fest down at Navy Pier. Okay. I did go to a lot of those rock fest and stuff sponsored by the Loop, FM ninety eight. Uh when Steve Dahl was on right, there. Right. Gary Meyer. Um but back then, I mean I was playing Probably in the earlier days, obviously you have your your chippies and the tracks records and your, you know, all the typical uh, DJ International and all that stuff. And there was some import stuff. I had some influences. My my buddy uh, Mark Medina, uh, who was another person who lived in my area. He he had some DJ friends. I had some DJ friends. Uh, one of my earlier influences was Hugo Mercado, who I went to school with, who was a breaker and stuff. And you know, there was like you know Andy Kudelka who. I had my DJ friend, Hugo, and my friend Mark had his friend, Andy. So we would cha- change, exchange tapes, and, you know, what we neither of us were doing it really. We were just kind of, he was probably a little further advanced with the DJ thing. I didn't have equipment, so I'd go to Andy's house and try to practice and backtrack and everything. And first of all, you realize how annoying that is if you're not doing it and you're just trying to figure it out. So that was the last thing he wanted to hear. <laughs> on his equipment me coming over there doing all that so it was like you got to get your own stuff right <laughs> you know yeah and how, when did what did you come across when you, when you did that? um i think my first turntable i, I bought them separately uh, i was going to uh an alternative school downtown actually in this area off of Water, south water street um called double e and it was for bad kids. <laughs> Which was you? Is that did you get? Do you have in trouble? Did you get in a lot of trouble as a kid? No, you know it was just that I I really didn't want to be in school. I wanted to be out there living the beat street life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I met another DJ who was actually uh, uh, at school there, named Mike Huerta, and him and his brother were doing a bunch of parties in Little Village. It was a a, a church. Uh, called the Blessed Agnes, the BA. And they, they had some pretty, uh, you know, notable parties. And we just kind of linked up, and he put me on my very first flyer. And it was like, you know, I think I was I was playing more the New Wave stuff then. But the New Wave was my uh, kind of my foot in the door, since everybody was, uh, you know, already doing the house and high energy thing. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, obviously there was Medusas and all that, the whole scene going up in the 20, uh, on the north side, during the 21 and over clubs. But obviously I was young, you know, I couldn't, you know, it would just trickle down for my friends, Rich and Andy, and they would go to Medusa's and tell me what they were playing. Yeah. Medusa's was all ages though, up until a certain hour. Yeah. Right. There was the early party and then the late party. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I remember trying to sneak in the bathroom. (laughs) That was the move where you try to sneak in the bathroom. Everybody wouldn't come through and kick you out. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Big Howie was at the door. Yeah. 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 And a lot of people used to have their uh, their I guess the uh, fire escape uh, 
play. Yeah. Play. Did, now, do you, you remember there was a there was a place up there that had a fairly regular hip hop name? It, it might have been a monthly at some point called the B Side Cafe. Yeah, yeah, that was a little later. That was a little. Yeah, that was right, like yeah. after Elbow Room started. That's right. Yeah, yeah pre Buddha, yeah. pre Funky yes. Buddha. Yeah, which was actually uh, his brother, um, Mark Clemens, uh, his other brother. Andrew opened the B-side. Okay. Yeah, so. That was on, was that on Belmont? That was on Belmont right off of Sheffield. It used to be the Avalon originally. Okay, right. So, so let, I want, I want to get to that though. So, so you're, you're, you're beginning to get out there. Your name's getting on flyers. Did you, did you, uh, you took the name, uh, DJ Jesse de la Pena or how, how did. That's my government name. Yeah. People always ask me about that. And you know, I didn't even think about it because everybody had a DJ name then. Right. I think it just kind of happened, and I didn't even have time. It's a fly name. So, I mean, just <laughs> they, like as a name, as a government name, as a DJ name, you Cause, know. Because I'll have people, you know, ask me, okay, but i got to write the check. Who do I write the check to? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I have a company. It's a good but... question to ask, too, by the way. So I'm, not, I'm sure you like getting those questions. <laughs> um, but there's, there's, there's funny, you know, you have your Jack Masters and... Rocking, socking, scratching. Yeah, it's there was an, it's, it was an era where you you, you cycled through. Everyone was Jack something. Everyone was you know. There's these cycles. But it's funny when you have a name like that, and then the promoter or somebody will write a check to that name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I don't think no. Jack yeah. Master, but thank you. Um, so, I, so, so, when when do you come up with the idea then to have a, a, a regular hip hop night? I think we still have to cover a little bit more. Okay, please. Because the new wave thing kind yeah. of took off. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of people were doing the new wave industrial thing. It, and it was kind of, and when, I, when I did a little more research on the punk out scene with Herb Kent, it was kind of handled in the same way. Even though there was like a good like six, eight years, maybe even 10 year gap between all the house promoters or dance music promoters that have, you know, mainly house and, and high energy DJs. But for like one maybe 45 minutes or a half they would feature because they were looking for other people to start frequenting, frequenting the parties. And I think they were looking for different crowds that, and they, they knew if they did a new wave thing, just like the punk out uh, parties on the West side, early eighties, that people would come out. Not everybody liked it, but it was in small doses. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the new wave thing took off. There were later, you know, club naked. It was our answer to Medusa's and stuff. So that's a whole other, other thing. But, the new wave thing was big for me. And who were you playing when you when you, when you say new wave? I mean, uh, New Order, Nitzareb, um, you know, Pet Shop Boys. But then the, the industrial side of it is more the wax track, the Thrill Kill Cults, Front Two Four Twos, you know, Clan of Zymox, all that stuff. You know, you get a little deeper and more the import sound. Um, so that I kind of rode that out for for quite some time, and I had a I had my own DJ crew. Uh, in the new wave thing, it was called. We were called uh, the New Division, and that was uh, consisting of uh, a few other DJs. My friend Andy Kudelko, who's a big influence, uh, Rich Divizio, uh, another DJ. He was in Mortal Kombat. He's Kano. Mm. Uh, if you guys know Mortal Kombat, uh-huh. um, and uh, later my my good buddy uh, Jimmy Munoz. Um, so it was kind of like a DJ crew, but we, we were, we were on this whole new wave thing. So we weren't going to be hot mix or whatever. So my friend Andy decided he would call us the new division because it was new order and joy division. <laughs> the mashup. We were, <laughs> yeah, we were a blend. So, yeah. Perfect for, for DJs. Yeah. So, you know, we, we did that for a while and not a lot of people were, were um, playing that type of music. 
but you know we had a couple little um teen club situations we had a place called the prologue that was kind of another answer to medusas but an underage thing uh that was in the little village area um and then you know we we had since the accident which was another whole project um, that these guys kind of financed and were trying to do their own little club and then it got shut down before it even opened. It was like, so there were all these like little things when that kind of was coming into like the, the late eighties, early nineties is when I decided that I couldn't just play, uh, or how I decided I couldn't just play the teen clubs. I was getting older and I wanted to start working in the bars and the nightclubs and shelter was happening, smart bar, all that stuff. And um, working in the record store, because I did start working in uh, imports records. Mm. You know, you meet different promoters and, and whatnot, even just going to Prano Printers to get your flyer stuff. It's a, it's a networking thing. You're, you're meeting all these people doing parties all over the city. Now, you might have to break that down. You know, we live in an era where there's no <laughs> more flyers, right? This was a, a great time where you had to have something placed Physical. in your hand yeah, actual in order to know poster. where the fuck to show up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this was, uh, it had a few Sarah, locations. do you know what a flyer is, by the way? Are you, are you familiar with a flyer? A plugger? Yeah. A plugger? <laughs> yeah. <are you>? No. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. This nope. is, it's what not is done that? that way, right? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I still print flyers. I'm going to give you a flyer before we leave. Bet. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Joe <laughs> Shanahan always says that. Every time I see you, I know I'm going to get a flyer. You nice. know? <laughs> but but back then, um, the, the place everybody printed their flyers and posters was Prano Printing. They had a few different locations, but uh, the the most popular one was the one on North Avenue. Um, probably just um, not cl- maybe it's a little west of Pulaski, um, and basically that was the meeting spot because everybody was there doing a party, and they were all waiting for their their uh, their flyer print jobs that were always late. You know, they would tell you come by Monday night at three in the afternoon, and you'd be there till three in the morning. And, you know, you just start talking to people. And there's, they had a wall full of flyers and posters. So you'd be talking to people and say, oh, yeah, that's your party. Oh, and so you just started making connections, promoters that you never met from all sides of the city. So that was uh, definitely a good networking thing. And uh, the and rest this is when there were parties like every everywhere. day of the week pretty yeah. much. That was when we were spinning a Friday night, maybe three parties, Saturday night, four parties all over the city, yeah. you know, going from, you know, maybe Little Village to back of the yards to South Chicago, all over the city, back up to the north side. Yeah. So I don't I don't know if we, I mean, because Sarah's a very, you know, she's working all the time, but it's not as dispersed like that anymore the, the the party scene I, I would say am no, i wrong i don't think so yeah no. and, and I'm, I'm i'm just so out of the loop when it comes to the young because i mean there are things that go on i'm like wow i'm just showing my age where i'm like, i have no idea that this is happening yeah and you know i'm always looking to to find a good party find a good dj but um yeah i mean it was it was happening uh, throughout the mid nine excuse me mid 80s right. into the 90s and once, yeah, I think we're, we're starting to creep into the, the hip-hop uh, parties and, and that scene. But um, the New Wave thing took its, uh, you know, took me on a nice little journey. Um, people started referring to me as a New Wave DJ. And at some point, that was cool. But I just, you know, I was a music lover. I loved everything. That was just what happened to kind of hit and got me in the door. And uh, I started, I came of age. I started getting older and I wanted to play in the clubs. So, you know, early on, I remember filling in for Johnny Fiasco down at some Rush Street bar and stuff. And he was just like, you can't just play 
industrial all night, you know? Right. Which is great, you know? But so, and the other thing is when we were mixing and we were doing these parties, we were doing these super short sets. They were like 20 minute sets, 30 minute sets. You come with your little half crate, you do your mix. And we would mix out, you know, it was quick mixing sometimes, you know, you double it up just to get to the break, in and out. When I started working in the 21 over clubs, I would be there for the entire night, meaning like Your set not, would be hours. Yeah, like yeah. six hour set, Damn, seven right. hour set. And I started really realizing right away that I couldn't go through records so quick. I had to let them play. And, uh, you know, that was that was a big eye opener. And I just realized I couldn't just play that one style, which, you know, I, that worked for you in those um flyer banquet parties banquet hall parties because you had that was your thing you come in the one style yeah, yeah the one style yeah and they would mix it up a little bit but yeah as i got older and i started playing at places like smart bar which was my first residency mm. you know that was what my, year what year was this was probably like 88 89 um i wasn't old enough to be there joe would always yeah, be shout like out joe. yeah joe yeah. shanahan <laughs> he was like, he, and he knew <laughs> always was, always old, putting people on <laughs> Joe definitely opened a lot of doors for people over the years, band-wise. Oh, uh, everyone in this room probably, you know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, he stays doing that. I mean, from yeah. the Smashing Pumpkins to oh, so many Pumpkin Popes. Yeah. I mean, he he knew I was a music lover, so he didn't have to worry about me trying to drink. I didn't really drink, so I just wanted to, I wanted to be in yeah. the place. So I met Jeff, Jeff Pazin. He was one of the residents at Smart Bar and kind of, I always say, took me under his wing, kind of showed me because it was a different style is just completely different preparing for a 20 minute half hour set versus uh being there in smart bar after the concert let off you know all the people coming downstairs some of the band coming down hanging out and i was super young and these were you know bands that i would wait outside a metro to go see now they're coming hanging out in a dj booth and you're new yeah. yeah it was it was pretty interesting and musically i had to kind of open up you know and I just loved music. So I was, you know, I was playing house stuff. I was playing hip hop, uh, you know, everything from reggae. I mean, my style evolved from spinning at Smart Bar using their library of music. They had a crazy. Which is really Joe's records, yeah, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Joe and Mark Stevens. Yeah. You know, Billboard reporter Mark Stevens, uh, rest in peace. Um, they had some amazing music there that I kind of taught myself. I mean, you know, I kind of missed out on the James Brown and the Sly Stone stuff because I didn't grow up with that, you know. Mom was into disco and stuff, and I knew that, the popular stuff, but I didn't know any really deep music. And it wasn't until uh, it sparked at Smart Bar because they had a library of great music. So every week, I always tell the story, I wasn't driving, so I'd bring records and I'd lock them up, and I'd come on the train with my records and I'd lock them up, and then I would use the, the bass of music that was there and it, i mean in this day and age we could never do that again with promoters and djs coming in and out but it was a great time to learn about music and certain records yeah you had, uh, you had a library yeah right? i mean literally yeah. yeah it was pretty awesome and you know for me i wasn't dry i was coming from the southwest side i i work i tell people this is my nine to five days where i started at 9 p.m and finished at five in the morning and then Getting home was a journey because uh, I'd leave um, Smart Bar, walk to the train on Addison, wait for that, then go downtown, get off at State by uh, Marshall Fields or Macy's now. Then I'd wait for the Archer bus and then take that 
to maybe the Kedzie or the Pulaski bus that didn't start running until like eight in the morning. Yeah. So I'd be done at five in the morning and I'd get home maybe about nine thirty in the morning. Shit. I'd go have breakfast what, and yeah. wait. Right. <laughs> right. No Ubers. Yeah, you were working that third shift for really. Yeah, I did that for for quite some time. But it was, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Wow. Um that's an amazing way to get educated. I see why you did not go to college. You know what I mean? Because that really, that, that's your college in a lot of ways, yeah. right? And I think that's how a lot of artists learn. Uh, when they know that this is something that they want to pursue, they just go into the world and pursue it. Um, so you see, you see a gap maybe um, in, in the cultural space. Well, at this point, I'm starting to get a little restless uh, with music in general. I'm kind of like, there's elements of records I like, but everything is kind of like, kind of boring and kind of like the same. But obviously, I, I may like this James Brown sample. I may like these horns and stuff. So I kind of went through this phase where I was kind of done playing regular dance music. And I started researching the roots of the elements of music that I like, the samples. And at the same time, acid jazz was coming together. Oh, yeah. This new spin on soul, funk, jazz, it was happening at the same time where I was really interested in the old stuff. So, you know, this is like early 90s. Um, and at this point, I'm actually working at Smart Bar on Saturday nights, which is, you know, I, I, uh, I took over after Mark Stevens, who was a legendary DJ. That was a, a whole ordeal in itself, trying to figure out Smart Bar and deal with a lot of the people who loved Mark, and I was the guy, the kid from the South Side who came in, and they're like, who the hell are you? You know, I, I with, with some of our, you know, notorious DJs here, they weren't very nice back then. I was this kid, and, and dealing with that. So trying to figure out, you know, 21 and over clubs and how that all worked. Uh, but I was getting bored with the music, and I wanted to start just kind of... I don't know. I just I just wanted to to focus on the stuff I really liked, and that happened to be the the soulful, the funkier stuff. At the same time, um, Joe had this idea where he I mean Joe would travel and he would uh, see what was happening in London and all this stuff, and the acid jazz stuff was was Pop coming in. out. Yeah, yeah. Pop coming I mean, out of there. Yeah. Trip hop, acid right. jazz. I mean, Young Disciples, uh, Massive Attack. Uh, all of that stuff, uh, Dream Warriors, yeah. uh, and even Gangstar was pretty jazz-influenced at that time. So Joe actually gave me the opportunity to do something a little different, to still stay with Smart Bar. Because I had like three different phases at Smart Bar, three different residencies in different years. Uh, but this was me going away from the weekend crowd and doing a Thursday night with Joe. And we were going we to build a night around this new music. It was called Substrata. It was kind of this underground, it was that smart bar. And Joe decided to assemble a band, a live band. Mm. And, uh, there was, you know, this is pre-Liquid Soul. Um, the name to this day, I never really uh, fully embraced. <laughs> but I, as I get older, I can. It was the, the Booty Kings. Oh, no. <laughs> the Booty Kings. And, and, you know, at some point, you're like... I don't know. Just I can't see yeah. myself saying <laughs> Jesse uh, de la Pena of the Booty the, Kings. But I like it. I got a nice <laughs> do, do it. You want to bring it back? Yeah, we should bring it back. Classic. <laughs> Classic, Classic name. Uh, I like it. I think once Joe put it, to, he's like, you know, like a pirate's treasure. The boot. I was like, 
I don't know. I don't know. Pirates makes it better. I don't know. Pirates make it make it better. Are you kidding? So, so you know, but that was my uh, introduction to working with musicians, and coming from just doing DJ stuff and knowing the break and the intro, I had no idea of the structure of a song how it all kind of came together, A, B sections, and, you know, just, it was my education, and this was pre-samplers, so we, it was, I don't know if it was like a five-piece, it was kind of, you know, it was a bass, drums, guitar, horn, and uh, I remember, and we we would feature different singers. Um, Joe's idea was to have the drummer kind of get off the kit and just kind of, Maybe just do percussion, kind of, you know. That was kind of more the sound, but he was kind of adamant about staying on the on the kit. And sure. He, and and there were so many different elements. Everybody was like a super amazing player, but I don't know if anybody or everybody had the the idea. We were not all on the same page. Oh, you know, Keith the drummer was amazing, but he was more of a like a Jimi Hendrix kind of. And then the bass player Fran was more of like a Chili Peppers funk and. It was great because I was getting my education in this, and I had a lot of pressure on me because I was taking, just like back in the day, little sections of the record and looping that live back and forth with two turntables, and that was the base of what was happening. So if I would come off, everything would fall apart. Of course, yeah. And these these were like minute-long, 30-second loops that I would find these little breakbeats. Um, so... Eventually, uh, we did that for a while. You know, it, musically, it was it was a fun time. I mean, I don't even know if it lasted a year, but it was it was cool. And I was just my my mindset musically was just like I couldn't see myself going back and playing all the major club like the hits. I was just kind of wanted to do my thing, so I started, you know, just doing smaller stuff. The problem was that in Chicago there wasn't a big hip hop audience. It was more underground and. I had to try to figure out if I was going to do these parties, I needed to make it smaller and target the people who already like hip hop, who already like jazz and poetry and whatnot. So it kind of like almost rebuilt things when it came. And then when that started kind of uh, moving forward, um, I was able to kind of, you know, do things on my own accord. And, uh, and that's where elbow room and all of that started coming together. Uh, it was smaller um, I definitely have to shout out uh, my man Tommy Klein, the guitar player in um, Liquid Soul and in the Booty Kings. He, you know, me in. Um, I hear that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, we tried to hold it in. I'm so sorry. It's all right. did, did, did that did that eventually evolve into Liquid Soul? It did more beca- or less because. Yeah. Um, and describe some, Liquid Soul was a how, how many how many pieces in Liquid Soul? I would. I mean, at some point it was like. Up to 12, 13 piece right. acid jazz ensemble. <laughs> right, right. Um, with 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 a lead, right? Dirty was was dirty. I brought Dirty in as the MC. Yeah. Um, and we traveled. You know, we we yeah. Uh, you guys were building. We, I mean, and we're we're fun. You guys had you guys a- anytime y'all played, it was a party for real. And we, I think that thing that really helped us is we had the residency. We started out at the Elbow Room Sunday nights. And that was like kind of a who's who of people would come through. It was right. it was a lot of fun, and and then we moved it to Double Door, and that's kind of what happened with um, Blue Groove. Lounge. Blue Groove, yeah. Is I needed to at least 
uh, have something like that, I couldn't come right off the bat and be like, I want to do a hip-hop night. Even though Joe did let me do a Tuesday night hip-hop night at Smart Bar for a while, and that was kind of cool. But, you know, it's, a lot of this traces back to Joe yeah. um, and Tommy Klein, because Tommy came over. Um, after we put the Booty King Sting to bed, uh, we wanted to, you know, we took a break, and we were looking for other musicians to kind of rebuild the band in more of a soulful, a little more the elements that we were kind of embracing. Um, and Tommy would, you know, tell me, I'm, you know, I got a bass player, I got this, you know, this percussion player, and we were kind of rebuilding it the way we felt it kind of w- could work. Yeah. And um, we started doing things at a place called the Culture Club. It was downtown, a little small place, and uh, we didn't have a drummer. I was the drummer. Right, yeah. So I would keep the beat going. Yeah. We'd have maybe a percussionist, maybe a horn player, and then we kind of started f- from like three, four people, and then, you know, eventually it kind of took off. But, yeah, the, the residency at Elbow Room kind of got things in motion. So it started as a liquid soul residency on Sunday nights. Yes. And then you evolved into a Monday night. In addition. So we were there Sunday and Monday. Right. I talked them into let me do a hip-hop night. But it was still very jazz-influenced. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, it, I mean, your, your, your selections were in that... Yeah. genre and of, i was going through that phase i yes. mean with the artwork the blue note artwork but the culture was in that phase too because this it was. is also like native tongue era yeah you know a lot of people were digging jazz samples to make great yeah. beats out of too yeah it was you know we were just i mean it was kind of backwards where i was discovering jazz through hip-hop like a lot of us yeah, did yeah and we were finding those sample records and you know becoming the, fans of that music yeah. that i had no idea about because of the samples yeah you know? And the sample, yeah, the samples kind of uh, spelled it out for us. We, we were just like, you know, it was interesting because early night would be like pretty much all samples and just low key stuff, and it would be just background, almost elevator music until you heard the sample, and then it was like, oh my god, right, that's the sample, yeah, you know? yeah. It was it's revelatory. I mean, you, yeah. yeah, and that was one of the I think the things to look forward to in your sets is that it was kind of like a revelation. You'd be like, oh shit. I've heard this a yeah. million times before, and now I'm hearing the original. Yeah, so that's what Blue Groove was, and, and even the name Blue Groove. Yeah, where did, yeah, where did you from from the Blue Groove label or, or no, 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 from the? Well, uh, I mean, Blue Note was Blue Note, obviously, yeah. you know, there in the thinking. But I had a million names, and even I have to shout out John Litz. Uh, he was the booker and later the owner at Elbow Room. Um, without Tommy Klein, uh, John Litz. You know, people like Joe Shanahan. I have no idea if I'd even be here doing any of this. Sure. You know, so I would definitely want to shout them out, thank them uh, early days for the opportunities. Um, I remember going to Elbow Room when it was a restaurant. The very last night that it was a restaurant, they were closing and they were going to do, started doing more music. And Tommy Klein was friends with uh, John, who was managing there. And he invited me to come. We went the very last day. We told him about our idea of doing a Sunday night. Said we were doing this thing at Culture Club. It could work. And Tommy, you know, from that, everything started building. Um, Without that, who knows, you know? Right. And so when did Blue Groove Lounge make its debut then? 94. 94. 94. And it was Monday night. Yeah. It was in the basement of the Elbow Room. Yeah. That's where it started. You had to go down these uh, stairs on the side of the yeah. side of the building, not on Lincoln, right there. No, the, yeah, on, the, on George, yeah, on George Street, and and it was you know it was small and it was you know very concrete, and the stage was very small. If you've been there in more recent years, they've kind of made the stage a little bit bigger, takes a little more floor space. But 
back then, man, it was it was like this cavernous yeah. kind of little thing. And it was subterranean. It was because it, it was in that same spirit of where a lot of the culture was. It felt it was underground. It was subterranean. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's kind of where things started. Um, and, and it was you, the first, or or at least in my estimation, the lone regular weekly hip hop night. I mean, I know that there was lower links, and that was regular. Um, and I know, uh, I only went to a few blue gargoyle parties and I got some flyers. Um, I think long-term it was probably the first of its kind. Yeah. Um, and you know, even the way that played out, it it was pure luck that I met, uh, Tommy through Joe and, you know, in, you know, Tommy had these relationships. He'd been in the business a lot, a long time. You know, he was older than us. He was a musician without those connects to even, you know, do this whole thing. I don't. I don't even know if we'd be even here talking. How now? How long did uh, Blue Groove Lounge then run for? It was shy of uh, ten years. Okay. And um, you know, we had our ups and downs with uh, the neighborhood, the neighbors. Uh, yeah, not a uh, very diverse uh, part of what I don't Lincoln Park Lakeview. Yeah, it was. It was Lincoln Park. Yeah, and we knew when the condos went up. Yeah. Things were going to get tricky. Right. And uh, and at the same time, there were new owners. That's where things got weird. The condos, the new owners. And, you know, for for a business, you know, you got to protect your, your own. And, and having a bunch of hip hop kids out in the park on a Monday lot, night. On a Monday night. Or know, ever, I re- guess, at that time. Yeah. <laughs> wreaking havoc and drinking and loud radios yeah. and weed smoking. Yeah. A lot of weed smoke, beady smoke, <laughs> red stripes. Drinking. I feel yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all so, of that. As much as people would always complain about, you know, there's no places for hip hop and the man and the establishment, they kind of did it to themselves with not respecting, you know, writing on stuff. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm not going to write on someone's house. Right, of course. But, you know, just it, 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 was, it was unfortunate that we wouldn't. I would have loved to have been at Elbow Room for the duration. Yeah. Uh, but we were getting pretty big. The night was getting pretty big. Yeah, so, it was packed. I mean, it didn't. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I started to go. You know, probably in 94, I got a fake ID because mm-hmm. of you in part. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. And uh, yeah, it, it, it began to be, you know, you couldn't. Yeah, you couldn't move. By the there, end of yeah. the night. Yeah, you couldn't move, which is in some ways one of the pleasure. It felt um, communal. It felt ritualistic. Uh, you know, I began to meet some of the first hip hop heads that I knew in the city there because it was, it was you know, you put up the bat signal and we came. Yeah. It, it, it was an interesting time because even in the early days, we always talk about how there were no ladies there. None. Uh, except Dirty would have the Dirty's occasional girlfriend. girlfriend Pete. Tr- Trina later. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they would like sit on the speaker, look at Dirty and be like, oh, I'm not going to talk to any girls <laughs> ever in my life. This is just, this is like the, the, the pitfall of being a hip hop head. And as, as the night progressed and the crowd got a little more diverse, you know, a lot of more college kids. You know, racially, ethnically, things, you know, at, by the time we went to Double Door, man, it, it, yeah, was, it was like everybody. It was really everybody. Was yeah, yeah. And, you know, there was just good music coming out. All of these uh, classic records we know and these tunes, man, back then they were, they were, none of these guys were famous. They were all just starting out, a lot of them. Well, and you broke a lot of records in that space. We did. We know? did. So, in, in, in both national and local records. And it, I think we had, um, we definitely have to uh, shout out the record, the street promoters, mm-hmm. the record promoters, the Shrewds, uh, on the street promotion, Mary Datcher, uh, Chauncey, all, all of the guys who are bringing the DJs records before they were even out. 
So that we were fortunate and we had relationships with those guys because these people were trying to do promo shows. They were doing promotional concert little shows to promote their new record. Right. And these were, you know. Who were some of the names you remember? I remember some people pop, hopping up on a Monday night to do a song or two that you, you let them get on the mic or Dirty would let them get yeah, on the mic. I, mean, I remember Wyclef. We had yeah. his his, his, uh, his album release. And, and that was even a funny interaction because uh, I kind of got into it with him. I got into it with him like twice um, because... Um, the reason we survived and why Blue Groove was a success is we had some order. And order in hip-hop, that's not really a, no. a thing, <laughs> yeah. you know? Not I, then, especially. As much as I always joke about the fifth element being tardiness and, <laughs> and, and you know, that irresponsible, you're supposed to be sound-checking, you're out in the car smoking weed. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just right. that's every, every Wu-Tang rec- uh, <laughs> a concert, you know? So... We were fortunate that um, we we restored some what well, we we created some order. Uh, if you were going to do the open mic, there had to be ten signups, and if we didn't get that, and you know people had to respect it one time, you know. So Bruno would be there to take the mic from you if you tried to go longer, and it, it was comedy sometimes, you know, just oh, yeah. all of that stuff. But that was the reason we were able to kind of move forward and keep it going is because we ran a tight ship. We didn't just let anybody jump up on the mic or you the ran a show, and that that was one of the pleasures of being there. Is that you know you could you could be sure that there would be some fresh MCs or whack MCs, mm-hmm. but they you know then they'd be done. Yep, and then there'd be multiple sets from very talented DJs. You'd get to hear music you've never heard before, some of it brand new mm-hmm. in the city, um, which I loved. I mean, there, there was a time where I remember seeing. You know, a lot of the folks who, you know, you're putting on this bill that's that's coming up the metro, this this will air afterwards. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I would see, you know, I would see uh, Aya Moss, you know, I would see Amina or Ange get up on the mic. I mean, I, I, remember, I remember seeing Redman at some point yeah. get, get up on the mic. And, and it was just any any Monday you didn't know what you would get. But you knew that there would be this order and that you would get something that you couldn't see anywhere else. You know, yeah. so it was like it was, in order to kind of be at the cutting edge, the vanguard of the culture, you wanted to come every Monday to know what was fresh. Yeah. If you were you didn't go and you heard Missy was there. Yo, or yeah. You'd be Cypress. People would be mad, you know. Yes. So and even those shows, they kind of fell into our lap where we weren't paying for any of those. Right, artists. People would just come through. They would come through. And in the, the record labels would hear about the monday night so they would schedule these artists being in town around a monday night and we didn't really charge anything extra it was like five bucks seven bucks if we we were always uh, afraid that if we did say okay it's ten dollars there's gonna be a concert and they get up and do one or two songs people would be really mad yeah so we just we as much as we could have charged extra for a lot of that stuff we didn't you know i mean whether it was common or I don't know. I yeah. mean, there was some some pretty amazing shows, but there were some ones that didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, for I, certain I, artists, you know. Yeah, sure. That sure. like, as soon as they got off stage, people were throwing stuff and they had to leave yeah. immediately. Yeah, well, and that was that era too. And I, I mean, I remember tension in the crowd if if there was you know somebody on the mic that was whack. That yeah, you would they would yeah. they would let you know you know or even if you you know there were a lot of like break off ciphers in the space, and if you yeah. came incorrect in the cipher, you could be dealt with there. <laughs> Um, I, f- I felt like I had to really be the coach. Yeah. You know, I was kind of directing things because, I mean, we were happy to have ladies showing up finally. So a bunch of dudes 
whack MCs on the mic for too long. That could jeopardize people just leave because people would just leave yeah. sometimes. So, you know, a good night was, you know, coming in, incense going. Yes, right. The right, the right samples and soul and jazz. And then, you know, kind of dirty and spo on the mic, just welcome everyone. And, you know, then we're going to let everybody know what's happening. Um, you know, some really laid back hip hop. And it was it was that setting the tone, and then it was the open mic, and then it was a party. And yeah. sometimes there'd be cats breaking, and sometimes it'd be straight up. We'd drop some disco, and people would be just, you know, feeling good. Yeah. And then before you know it, some so-and-so would be in town, and they'd get up and do a song or two. I mean, that was a lot of fun, you know? Yeah, yeah. I feel privileged that it all played out like that, because there's been a lot of false starts, you know, where... You know, there's been events that or nights that we've tried to start that didn't really start pre Blue Groove, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm just glad that, you know, we had a good team. We had a really good team from everybody from the promoters, you know, your big Larry's and Redell's and stuff to, you know, our security and, and people that were part of that, that, that scene, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that space for 10 years was, was a go-to, uh, you know, for so many of us in the city. And I think really kind of coalesced what would become the foundation for Chicago's hip-hop scene, you know, because it was where it a lot of folks met. Yeah, I think a lot of connections, a lot of friendships yeah. were made. Yes. And uh, little things, uh, you know, kind of sparked other little uh, uh, go-arounds. I mean, you know, there were, there were hip-hop nights before Blue Groove, and I always state that. You know, we're fortunate that we were able to kind of run with it for a longer time. Obviously, big up to 606, Tuesdays at yeah, Subterranean. Yeah. All the other things that kind of carried on the tradition yeah. because, you know, we, we ran our course. You know, we like I said, we did it. We moved around a little bit. And it was just getting harder to do because hip-hop at that time, even though it was getting more popular, it, with the the establishments, there wasn't a if, – if, they weren't making a lot of money. They were obviously people were there and they were kind of drinking and stuff, but it wasn't like a bottle service crowd that were there making money hand over fist. So it was still kind of like any venue that was doing it. Just taking a chance. Yeah, they were taking a chance and if there'd be one fight or something, which in Blue Groove history, maybe there was one or whatever. And that may be the one that I'm thinking about was, you know, with two girls and that resulted in things getting weird at double door and us having to move mm. you know so we moved it around went to wild hair which was great when it was uh it was on clark that's right yeah. great sound system um and then uh we, we we felt like it was cool but we were too far up uh in lakeview yeah so we we towards the end we were like maybe it'd be great to bring it back to wicker park so we brought it back to the note and uh it was cool but music where music was I wasn't really l- looking to follow. Mm. Things were getting really kind of wacky. Like the mid-aughts Yeah. 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 Hip-hop I, was different at that time. It was getting different. We were all getting older. Yeah. Uh, responsibilities, families, and jobs. And, uh, you know, we couldn't be out till 2, 3 in the morning all the time. So it kind of made sense to put it to bed. We had a nice little run, and I promised every once in a while we would do it again. Yeah. So we did a 10-year. I think we did a, maybe a 20 and. Coming up on the 25th. That's well, right. And I, and I have to state reunion 
not anniversary because right. you know we didn't run straight through but it's it's a nice little family reunion you yeah. know well there's there's a beautiful piece uh that the homie Lior Galil has done in the reader and you could you could listen you could you could uh read it you could read it online or pick it up it'll be when this episode drops it'll still be on the newsstands um I know, you know, you've gone on to do so many other things, and so I think we're going to have to have you back for a second episode. <laughs> um, but I do want to say real quick, you are and have been now for some time uh, the DJ um, in residence at uh, Vocalo and, and WBEZ. What's your, what's your official post there? I think when I came over, I was mainly just, I don't know if, if I had what my t- oh, music curator was the original um, title when I came over. I've been there almost 10 years now right coming out there and um at some point you know there's been many phases you know we gave a birth to so many different djs that people know regularly now uh we gave them an opportunity we made a great team obviously a homage to the hot mix five and 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 chicago's very rich mix show culture um but uh, over the years, you know, my 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 focus may have a switch where I'm doing a little more of the features and the the birthday celebrations, and you know, I have a series called No Chicago. It's it's uh, I've done a few of them, but I want to get back to doing stuff like that. And it's basically a little similar to what you guys are doing as far as club culture um, and things that were happening in Chicago that are common knowledge to me and you. Mm. But if you were younger or if you didn't grow up in Chicago. I'm just trying to, you know, tell those stories, give people an opportunity to hear. You know, we did one on um, early Chicago DJ crews. That was kind of cool. It, it's all on my Mixcloud, mixcloud.com. Um, yeah, where, yeah, where, where is the best place for people to find your music and just keep in tune? Because you're also still, you know, you're still playing parties. Yes, and, yeah, I'm still doing it. I don't do it nearly as much. Sure. But you can always uh, my Mixcloud, Mixcloud, mixcloud.com forward slash JDLP. A lot of these are on the Vocalo Mix Cloud. Um, that's probably the best way to to hear some of the music. I don't have a lot of mixes up, but a lot of the the features are up, and a lot of the interviews did a nice uh, Herb Kent punk out feature uh, yeah. uh, through the No Chicago thing. So there's there's some some interesting ones. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have to get you back for for uh, a part two of the Jesse De La Pena <laughs> story. But uh, my man, I, I'm so grateful and, and glad that you came on, and, and also just you know, very. I mean, I'm indebted for for the space that you've provided so many of us and myself included to really have a home. You know, to have a place to go on the regular and to meet all of the homies. You know, in in the spaces that that you were making and curating for us. And so, you know, thank you for for all of the work then and the work that you continue to do. Um, I'm really looking forward to this weekend, of course, at the uh, w- uh, Winter Block Party at the Metro. Um, this will air after the, the fact. But, uh, you know, again, man, we'll have to get you back. And thanks so much for being in the corner store. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I, I definitely want to thank you for inviting me to be a part, a little more uh, intricate part of the Winter Block Party and having the Blue Groove tie-in. So uh, definitely props to you, everything you guys are doing down here. Keep it going. We need more stuff like this. Definitely much appreciated. Thank you. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our 
Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.